this is Randy, pastor here at Vernon First Baptist Church, and happy to continue on in our Revelation of Jesus series. As we start to look into some of the harder texts, this one, Revelation 8, is this good news, especially to the early church, to us. What could these trumpets mean as we look at the first four trumpets? Enter in with an open heart, a heart to be changed by Jesus. Thank you. I'm going to invite Grace to come forward in a moment. Well, actually, you can come on forward now, Grace, as she's going to read our scripture for us. But I want to say that I have good news for you this morning. It's not just our kids moment. That's not it. That's not the good news. That I have good news for you as we talk about trumpets and justice. And you might say, good news? Pastor, have you read Revelation? Well, we'll see this morning. So Grace, please read our scripture passage for us. A reading from the Revelation of Jesus. This is from Revelation chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Grace. Let's pray as we enter into this passage together. Jesus, you are the living word. And we're reminded that this is a revelation of you, of pulling back of the mysteries, the clouds, the mist, to see you clearly and what is going on. And so we ask for that today, that we would see you as we approach your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you might remember back in 2000. 16, a video was released of a special circle cloud in the sky over Jerusalem. And there, there was the sound of trumpets in the air. And people wondered, what is going on with this? This video went viral. Some, some reported this was happening right after a certain president was elected that year though it was posted at least one month before the election, uh, actually. 
And also, the creator of this video is very well known for their video effects. The ability to do special video effects. And no one else actually posted anything reporting the same event. You think a special circle cloud and trumpets with 800,000 people in Jerusalem with cell phones. You think someone else might have caught it on camera. So this is my reminder, almost could be a daily reminder, not to believe everything you see on the internet. But as we read this passage, as we delve into Revelation, there's no doubt that there are trumpets being blown in heaven. And we want to understand what these are about. The vision, actually, that was given to John is mapped out quite systematically in one sense. You can take a look at, we looked at the seven seals. There were six seals, and when the seventh one is opened, right here, when he opens the seventh seal, we end up having within that seal these trumpets, and there's seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet, we will see as we go farther, there are seven bowls. So this isn't just random chaos. There is a system here that we can look at, a pattern which we'll be unpacking over the next few weeks. And today we're going to take a look at the first four trumpets. Now Eugene Peterson, this is a, an incredible book that's very well written called Reversed Thunder. And in this book, Eugene Peterson says this. The everyday data of a typical week are assembled on the pages of the Revelation. Political terrors, liturgical mysteries, painful separations and unanswered prayers, glorious hymns and unfulfilled prophecies, felt glories and brutal cruelties, heart-rending deaths and unquenchable hopes. All this is the experience of persons who decide to live by faith in Christ. St. John's Revelation choreographs all this in a ballet of images. The repeated use of the number seven, a number that communicated a sense of wholeness to the ancient and biblical mind, sets up cadences of wholeness in the imagination. I want us to remember, as we looked at these last couple of weeks, who holds the scroll? It's the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain. And we remember who are those who are sealed? Those who follow the way of the Lamb. And when this seventh seal is open, you might expect something immense to happen. A crescendo to the seventh seal. And in one sense, it is. Now, do you remember the scene? We have 24 elders around the throne, four living creatures with multiple faces, the angels, multitudes of angels, and then the great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, all praising, always in worship to the Lamb and to the one on the throne. 
And then when the seventh seal is opened, Scripture says, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Some say the men must have arrived in heaven 30 minutes early. If you don't get that one, you can ask someone later. Silence in heaven? Really? What is this about? What's going on? I feel it might be a little awkward. I was tempted to just come up here at the start and just stand here in silence and see how long it lasted. Silence. Could you imagine if we just stayed silent here for 30 minutes? It would feel awkward pretty quickly. So what does this mean? Half hour of silence. Well, it could mean that this is a great pause before the trumpets. Uh, some would say a dramatic pause to, to stress how important what's coming. I think it's more like the silence represents the listening heart of God. And either way, there is a half hour of silence in heaven. And if there is, silence must be a good thing. And I would encourage you as you go into this year, especially in these times when we're maybe trapped inside a little more because of the snow, to intentionally take some time of silence personally. Or even alongside other people, to allow space for silence. We don't need to fill every space in our lives with noise, and too often we do. Even when it comes to our prayers, listen to what Eugene Peterson says again. We're going to look at his book a few times here as we go through this morning. He says this, Praying is that act in the life of faith which consciously and deliberately enters into a speaking, listening, attentiveness before God. His relationship with his creation and creatures and their relationship with him. Whenever we concentrate, focus, and attend, we pray. Prayer is the coming into awareness, the practicing of attention, the nurturing and development of personal intensity before God. Beautiful thought. Well, then we have... John says that he saw, once again, he's telling us what he sees here. He saw seven angels. Now, have you heard of the seven angels? It's actually, it's quite a, we, we've seen even their names. For the early church, this would, they would have been well aware of this. You know, and they've become popularized, even stained glass windows. Uh, you can see them on. Uh, there they are. I'm not quite sure what they're doing with the hobbit here in this one. Um, uh, and I don't know why, why Miguel doesn't have the long robe. He has, to, he has good legs, I guess. I don't know. But they, they all have names. The names come from some extra-biblical apoc apocalyptic literature. It would have been well known to the early church. So when, when they say the seven angels, they would have known exactly who they're talking about. We, on the other hand, maybe don't. 
It's not from uh, the canonical scripture, but from some apocalyptic literature of their day. Much like uh, extra writing that we have from like a C.S. Lewis or Max Licato, uh, This Present Darkness, some of their apocalyptic literature would have been like that. And they say this, uh, the seven angels come out, they stand, and they have seven trumpets given to them. And then another angel, we don't know who this one is, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne and the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. This, this whole uh, painting of this picture of the prayers coming up before God led George Herbert, the famous poet, to the idea of reversed thunder, that as much as thunder crashes down and lightning crashes down from heaven, the reverse thunder is our prayers going up to God's listening heart. And do you see how some people feel that the silence represents the prayers and God listening to the prayers of the people? Well, in any case, I think silence is a great place to start as we go into this material. That we don't jump ahead with our heart pumping as we read this, but that we take moments of silence to pause, to remember to put it all in its proper context. And there's a few things that I want us to notice as we go through this. One is this day of the Lord language that we heard here. There came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is not the first time that we've seen this in Scripture. We've seen it often, time and time again, through the Old Testament, through apocalyptic writings, talking about God putting everything right that has been wrong, which includes judgment of evil. And though scripture is clear that there will be an ultimate day of the Lord, it also seems that days of judgment come at various times throughout history. Minor prophets and major have used this language time and time again. In fact, I started putting them on my screen going, maybe I'll read through a few of these and you'll begin to see just how many I found and came up with. So let me just take a a few of these. Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm. Ezekiel. On that day, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Uh, Isaiah. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. The Psalms. Habakkuk. Zechariah. Joel. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Obadiah, Haggai, Malachi. And I would encourage you to read these prophets, if not, at least so that it won't be so awkward when you meet them in heaven and they ask you, hey, how did you like my book? 
Obadiah? Amos 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, it says. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. And we even see it referred to in the New Testament. Jesus, in the Gospels, Peter as well. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And even Jesus, and this is really fascinating, Jesus uses this language in three of the Gospels, language of total destruction, and said, he said that it would occur in the lifetime of the disciples. So either there is a figurative and varied understanding of using this type of language, day of the Lord, the thunder, the earthquakes, or we'd have to conclude that Jesus has got it wrong. And that's not right. One passage I love in particular, this is unique, Isaiah 3. In that day, so again, the sense of the day of the Lord, judgment's coming, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, even the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Whew, this is like he's the Grinch, you know, slinking through, some, slinking through Tiffany's. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Some of us have started to find that judgment. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. So this, this imagery, my point is, this imagery is not new to John or the Revelation. It's ancient words that were used again and again, fulfilled at various times and in various ways. So the next thing, of course, that we notice here is that there are these trumpets blown and judgments that come with them. And when we look at them, I want you to, to listen for some echoes of the Exodus. Again, this language of God showing his glory and bringing justice. For when in, in the Exodus, if we remember, his people were in slavery. And it says this, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Later in Exodus, we see, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So I'm going to read the next portion, and if you've turned to, uh, to Revelation 8, that's great, you'll follow. It's not going to be on the screen, and I don't mind if you just listen. That's how it would have been for the early church. They would have listened to this and pictured it in their mind with echoes of these things from the past and how they would have heard it. So just feel free just to listen as we go from verses 7 to 12 here. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Do you hear the echoes? The echoes from the Exodus. Now, some would want us to look at this and read it as a chronological and literal explanation of future judgments that are to come. But many theologians would disagree. And I want to take a look at some reasons why they would say that this is not literal and it's not meant to be taken literal. If we consider it, a third of the sea turning to blood. Well, God does know that water all flows together and that it would all disseminate through it. And if we were to think literally that a third of the sun, a third of the moon disappearing, that it would, it would pretty quickly end life as we know it. But figuratively, this would be darkened skies. Some things that we begin to see more and more. Why we would say when we see skies like our fire and smoke-filled skies that we see when we have the, the fires, we begin to think of these passages, right? We think apocalyptic. And some commentaries struggle to explain. You know, perhaps it's a volcanic catastrophe, a meteor strike, losing a substantial portion of grasses, might also restrict food available for livestock. Well, it says all the green grasses were burned up. How about this star named Wormwood? On a third of the rivers and springs. There may be some science here that we don't know. Maybe it is a meteor strike of some sort, poisoning water with its metals. But again, this sense of Wormwood, if we think back to the echoes in if we look back to Old Testament references, Deuteronomy 29, God warns the Israelites not to return to idolatry, to be a root that bears gall and wormwood. Amos 5 speaks out against people who turn judgment to wormwood. So the sense of wormwood, they would hear this. In fact, Amos says this, Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you, fallen is virgin Israel never to rise again, deserted in her, no, in her own land, with no one to lift her up. There are those who turn justice into bitterness, the word for wormwood, and cast righteousness to the ground. The people hearing this would have had these echoes in their minds, in their hearts. And the point is not the literalness, but the symbolic Judgment being passed, symbolic poisoning of our water supply, 
which is happening in around our world, possibly even more metaphorically, the drinking of bitterness because of the lack of living out righteousness and justice of God, like Amos was prophesying. And we'll come back to that in a moment as we talk about justice. So we see these trumpets are not meant to be taken literally, but are they meant to be taken chronologically? And I would say no. This is not happening in a timed sequence, a promised timed sequence. The grass that is burned up here, completely, it says, is told not to be harmed in chapter 9, coming up, which we'll see. Or how do we have a star falling, or a third of stars being blanked out when the stars already fell in chapter 6? If we take a look at at the symbols of the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, some would see in this a cyclical nature in telling the apocalyptic story. That there's a a cycle to these that are repetitive with actually some endings of Scripture. And we'll find those endings of the whole story a few times throughout Revelation. And we'll see that. And these Many, many theologians would point to these being fulfilled in various ways throughout history. Now, if we were to try to interpret it literally, also chronologically, we would find that even just from these four trumpets that we would have the end of the world because of the catastrophe that would have come. Is the point that it's all Ending at this point, is that what the trumpets are meant? Full judgment has come? If not, if not, then what do they mean? So let's take a look. So what do the trumpets mean? The main thing that the early church would understand out of this is that God is merciful. Mercy, you ask? Fire from heaven is mercy? Anybody want to question me on that? Feel free. I had to question it too as I was reading and studying. How could we say this? How could we say that a main message coming out of this is that God is merciful? Well, first, remember the angel gathering up their prayers, gathering it together with the fire from the altar and hurling it down. This is a response to their prayers. Those under the altar crying out, how long, O Lord? How long do we have to live under this oppression? How long do we have to be tortured and beaten, rejected in business, thrown out of our homes? There is a call for justice, and God responds. The early church would see God in action in these trumpets. And there would be a sense of comfort, rejoicing. All right, God will act. God will act. Now, the second reason that we could see that this is uh, an image of God being merciful is that this is a call to turn 
to God. Did you catch how throughout it, it's consistently a third, a third, a third through those four trumpets? This is meant as a call to turn back to the living God before total destruction. If we keep going our own way, it's inevitable. As we look back on the day of the Lord language, the Old Testament passages that we looked at, especially the ones with trumpets, all, every one of them, are a call to repentance. Blow the trumpet and a call to turn back to God. Mercifully, instead of wiping out the people, God calls us back to live in the way we were created to. And the people would have seen that in this. That this third, the sense of third, 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 this isn't a total destruction. This is a warning. What you see happening around you, this is a warning. Don't keep going down that road. Turn to the abundant life that I created you for. So answering their prayers and a call to turn back, not just for them, but for the world around them. Once again, let's look at Eugene Peterson. He says this, St. John directs the praying imagination full of the hope that the trumpets evoke to attend to what God does in response to our prayers so that in lives of thoroughgoing repentance, we may be free for the new life. The trumpet plagues reconstruct the Exodus plagues. And the Exodus plagues were not punitive, but purgatives, sent not simply to make Pharaoh miserable, but to get him to change his mind, to repent. The purpose continues here as the praying imagination prepares to apply the trumpet plagues to our lives. So as we read this, can we say, ah, God is calling us back to his holiness, his fullness of life, not just acting in our own ways. Second thing that I think that the trumpets mean is that God is just and will judge true evil. In some ways, it seems like God's being indiscriminate here, a random third of everything. But if we don't take it so literally, but understand the symbolism of it, we see that God will not let evil rule forever, but will bring judgment against it. And that's the hope that the early church would have hung on to as they heard this, as they saw the Roman Empire around them, oppressing them, that God's holiness would demand judgment for the oppressors. The Roman Empire will be judged just as Egypt was. If we think of the echoes back to the Exodus, echoing. Verse 13 says, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded 
by the other three angels. So again, this call, call of repentance, but there's more to come and justice will prevail. Evil will be judged. Now, justice is not so simple, mind you. I was just saying, oh, I know exactly who needs to be judged, right? Some would say that we are to glory in the judgment of God in passages like this. Like, we do read sometimes the Hebrews' glory in the fall of Pharaoh, but before judgment has been passed, let's not get too fired up, saying we know who deserves it, ready to pass judgment. It's definitely not acting like Jesus. Are the people of God spared, even if they are the ones committing evil? When we think back to those day of the Lord judgments, often it was Israel being called out. As we went through the minor prophets, I remember time and time again, we saw how they were called to justice just as often as God was calling out the nations around them. And eventually, Jesus said, many of them would miss out completely. The day of the Lord judgment was enacted on them more than a few times throughout history. Now, if Israel isn't spared from judgment, what about us as the church? Those who are walking in the way of the Lamb, we may be sealed, sheltered. But we see as we read those seven messages earlier in this revelation, the seven messages to the churches, we saw it time and again. We need to be willing to examine ourselves. That we are called to live out the life of Jesus on this earth and will be held to account. And we have to accept that this gets a bit complicated at times. It's not just we're in, we're good, and we can pass judgment and denounce others. But God is calling us to do. As we see over in the Middle East, what about the cries of those who have followed Jesus for the last two millennia, part of his church, and they, their kids, their neighbors are being killed in Gaza? What about them calling for justice? What about the cries of the marginalized, even our neighbors, those on our streets that we seek to love, those who have been abused in residential schools, those who have been abused in our churches, which comes out more and more. Those who we have not loved as we could, what about their cries for justice? How do we face this? It's not easy. Yes, we can point the finger at those around us who are obviously missing the mark, and that's easy, easy to do. There are many living outside the goodness and holiness of Jesus, no doubt. But unless we humbly approach them, willing to admit that we are often missing the mark as well. They will only see us as self-righteous and judgmental, 
as opposed to loving them as Jesus loves them. Inviting them to explore the goodness of Jesus, living in the justice of God. This passage is a call to God's holiness and right living. And that's always to the people of God first. And we have to accept that we we do have more to learn. These trumpets are for us as well. They're a call to turn to the living God. This is not about final judgment, but reminders that the world, and yes, even us in it, are missing the mark of Jesus' abundant life. One last quote from Eugene, and we are done. Revelation makes it clear that everything is subject to God's creative judgment. When any of the great elements of creation get between us and God, becoming idols, judgment topples them and restores us to simple trust and adoration. Every misplaced trust and every mistaken devotion is called into question. Now, we don't have to doubt that God has sealed us. If we're walking in the way of Jesus, if we rely on him, But even as one of those minor prophets, Micah, you've read a bit of his book, you know a little bit of one verse anyways. He was clear how we are to act. Yes, God's justice will come, but in the meantime, are we acting justly? Are we loving mercy? Are we walking humbly with our God? Jesus came to show us how to walk in that way. That's why we love him so much. I'm going to invite you to stand in a moment as we sing our final hymn after we pray. And it's going to be holy, holy, holy as we sing God's holiness. But that life of holiness is lived out in us, just as we saw in Jesus, in an incredibly beautiful way of loving people around us, inviting them into the goodness of God, not living out in judgment not living out in a hateful way, but in Jesus' loving way. That's the holiness of our God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this book. It's not easy to go through. It's not easy for us to understand. And so we thank you for the challenge to see things as our brothers and sisters, the early church, would have seen them. How this would have been comfort and encouragement as well as challenge to them, not only to the world around them. So Lord, as we, as we sing of your holiness, as we understand that we want to be more like you in your righteousness, may we see that lived out in our lives by your Spirit as we become more like you, Jesus and how we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We pray for your work to be done in us, for your holiness to fill us by your empowering presence. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stay standing for a closing blessing.
and benediction. As you go from this service, go in the knowledge that God is merciful, as merciful as he is mighty, and that he calls us all to live as we are created to, in goodness and in love. And God will put all things to right. So go in that knowledge, in the peace of his empowering presence in you. In the Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.